This is God's word. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment. I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors, who were before me, laid very heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor. 
because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. This is God's word. Let's just pray. Lord, uh, would the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing, acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Open the eyes of our hearts that we wouldn't just hear information, but that we would actually experience a transformation by you. Would we ultimately see the greater Nehemiah, Jesus, in this text? Would we see him and worship him? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I was talking with a person I respect a lot. And at the end of our time together, he said to me very carefully, he said, Joe, you sound angry. And I said, nope, not my problem. Not my problem. I'm not an angry guy. And he smiled. And he suggested I read a book. (laughs) And I said to myself, no, thanks. But fast forward two years, the Lord has been uncovering a lot of untouched anger and sort of the deep regions of my soul. And it's just the case that I'm so afraid of that particular emotion. I suppress it. I pretend it doesn't exist. And so I bought that book. That book. I bought that book. I plan to talk to my counselor about it. And then last week I was at a, I was invited to Covenant Seminary where I went to a seminary and there was a lecture series. And one of the lectures of the many uh, was, was a lecture on anger. It was so timely. It was so on point. It seems as if the Lord is challenging me to get healthy here. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, because when I read this chapter to prepare this sermon, I saw that Nehemiah got angry and I thought, aha, that's it. That's what this sermon is going to be about. It's going to be about anger. What is godly anger? But I started to get uncomfortable with that. And for a really simple reason, that's not really what the text is about. I mean, Nehemiah gets angry and is tied to it, but it's not really the core of what's going on. What is it about? Well, it's actually hard to miss, but very easy to ignore. It's about a great outcry, verse 1. Do you see it? A great outcry. Who is crying out? Well, the first five verses that we heard read aloud spell out three different types of people crying out, all similarly under the same tent. There are those in verse 2 who are so materially poor that they are helpless to eat. And then there are those in verse 3 who own things, they're landowners, but they're mortgaging what they own in order to eat. They're pawning their stuff off to eat. And it's the wealthy nobles that are all too eager to buy off that land. And then there's in verse 4 and 5, those who can't pay their taxes to the Persian king, which apparently was like 40%. And then there are those, that we'll call them debtors, who are selling their children into debt slavery. This isn't chattel slavery. In North America, it's debt slavery, and they were selling their children into debt slavery. That's who's crying out. Now, now, why are they crying out? Well, they're crying out because they're being exploited by the nobles and the officials. You see it in verse 7. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. 
See, these people who were crying out, they knew better. They knew their Bibles. And they knew them well enough to know that they were not just being exploited, but being sinned against by their leaders. These leaders were not just exploiting their poor brothers and sisters. They were defying God. Who says in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 36, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. They were defying God who says in Leviticus 25, 39, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, what? You shall not make him serve as a slave. This is Leviticus, friends. This is their scriptures and ours. God who says in Deuteronomy 15, there should be no poor among you. Just let that sink in. But if there are any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly. For the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. So if this passage is not really about anger, what is it about? This passage is about a person like me, not poor, mindlessly exploiting the poor, And then ignoring their outcry. Okay? It is about God's people zoning out when their brothers and sisters are crying out. And isn't it telling, I'm just going to be honest, that that is exactly what I was doing when preparing for this sermon. I was zoning out the cries of the people and focusing on things I'm very comfortable about. Internal issues, therapeutic issues, spiritual issues. Brandon O'Brien and Randy Richards, he, they both point out how common this is. Uh, when we, often when we read the Bible, we read the Bible through Western and wealthy glasses. So this book is called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And they point out that when we read Scripture through wealthy Western glasses, we often miss what is clear to the ancient communities. So, for example, in 2002, uh, Gary Williams, he wrote this incredible article for the scholarly journal, the Tyndale, uh, the Tyndale Bulletin. He read as many books, sermons, articles as he could find on the chapter that we just read. And what's very interesting is he found something odd. Third world writers. They would read this chapter and they would talk about things like the poor and the marginalized. They would talk about things like restorative justice. 
They would talk about things like the relationship of mercy to justice. These third world writers would find help in chapter 5 for their brothers and sisters who are enslaved to the company stores that they're working for. Enslaved with unpayable debt. Or they would think of their brothers and sisters in Christ whose only access to credit is at 20% per day. On the other hand, as he surveyed first world authors uh, on this chapter, uh, we like to talk about things like leadership. From this chapter, some talk about family planning, patriotism, promise keeping, and yes, anger management. What's going on here? When the poor cry out, Comfortable Christians zone out. But here's the truth. Why God's people might zone out, God does not zone out. It's over and over again coming up in the scriptures. God hears the cries of his people. In fact, that outcry, that word outcry in verse 1 is the same exact word that the Israelites use when they're in bondage to Pharaoh. And what does he say in Exodus 3? God says, I heard their outcry. And part of what is so wrong that Nehemiah points out is that they are acting the Pharaoh to their own people who are crying out. They're zoning out even if God zones in. In this passage, Nehemiah, I think, reflects the character of God. It doesn't always reflect the character of God, and that's an important point. When you're reading the Old Testament narratives and the New Testament narratives, there is one hero. It's God. It's God. It's the Son, Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God, triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the hero of the text. And oftentimes we elevate sinners into the place of God. So that's definitely something to avoid. In this case, we see Nehemiah reflecting the very character of God. He's being quite literally godly because he is hearing the outcries of the poor. And we too are called to be godly. And so what is a godly response to the cries of the poor? Well, let's first define the poor. Let's talk about that. One writer points out that the poor is anyone who lacks material goods, social capital, and power. And or power. So this includes not just the unemployed, which I think some of us naturally think of, or the working poor, which we sort of naturally think of. But let's expand our understanding a little bit. If what it means to be poor biblically is those who lack material goods, social capital, and or power, then we need to include in this category of the poor, the weak, the elderly, the mentally handicapped, the physically handicapped, the refugee, The new immigrant. Victims of natural disasters. The unemployed. The single parent. The orphan. Victims of systemic injustice. Anyone on the margins. 
And we are called to respond to their cry in a godly way. What is that? What is that? Well, we can take our cue from Nehemiah. I'm just going to hit on some themes that we see him doing in this text. The first is this. We can respond to the outcry of the marginalized, of the poor, with righteous anger. So in verse 6, take a look. Nehemiah got very angry when he heard the outcry. So when we hear the outcries, uh, we are supposed to get angry. Uh, That's really intimidating. Because we've only seen or experienced or expressed very unhealthy and abusive forms of anger. So how do we deal with that? Well, the best advice I ever heard on this is taken from Mark chapter 3 verse 5 in which Jesus expresses anger who was sinless so it couldn't have been a sinful anger the Pharisees are, are sort of giving him flack for extending mercy to someone in the, uh, in the synagogue and Jesus gets angry and then it says the very next word grieved okay healthy anger stays sad there's grief I think we should respond with healthy anger. I think also we should respond with rigorous self-examination. It happens right after in verse 7. Take a look. Nehemiah takes counsel with himself, it says, before he acts, before he sort of acts on this. And so this, in this little verse, I see a, I see a Nehemiah sort of uh, enacting or enfleshing Psalm 4, verse 4 and 5, which reads this. It says, be angry and do not sin. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. What he says before that, though, the psalmist, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And so there's a self-examination that happens. We can't and we shouldn't stuff our anger when we see injustice. That's not healthy. But it's probably good to examine your anger. And to take it to the Lord. Like Nehemiah, we can take counsel with ourselves. And then I think we should then respond with repentance. So this is verse 7, the sort of second half of verse 7 through verse 13. If you take a look. In verse 12 of this section, we see a beautiful display of repentance. Where God's people say, we will restore and require nothing. That is a beautiful definition of repentance. If you want to put something on your fridge, that's a good place to start. Because true repentance is restorative and true repentance requires nothing from the victim. How did they get here? Well... There's a process that Nehemiah walked them through. And the first was confrontation, verses 7 through 8. Nehemiah confronts them in two ways, like a prophet and like a wise person or a sage. Like a prophet, he just says it plain. Verse 7, he says, he says uh, what you're doing is not okay. Straight ahead. And then like a poet, like a, like a wise person, like a sage, he then tells a slant. He tells a story. And he says, basically... You are acting like Pharaoh. 
Like the very gospel that you believe in, which, which is God by grace rescuing you, though you were enslaved, you are reversing by playing Pharaoh. You now are in your actions enslaving your brothers and sisters. You are not listening to their outcry. And he tells a story that leaves them silent. And that's the second movement. Confrontation, if true repentance happens, there will be silence. In verse 8, you see it. They were silent. Could not find a word to say. You know repentance is happening. That God the Spirit is giving you repentance when you don't justify yourself. And you stand silent. Which then leads to change. Verses 9 through 11. Take a look. Repentance is turning around. So you're going this way. Repentance is turning around and going this way. And you see that in action in these couple verses. Nehemiah offers the path of repentance. He reorients them to the person, not just the idea of God. He reorients them to the fear of the Lord. And then in verses 12 through 13, we see worship. They say, we will do as you say. And then he called in the priests. And they say, amen. And they praise God. That's what it says. They say, amen. So for them to walk in repentance and to pursue justice in their community, they need to worship God who is merciful and just. Okay? Uh, they say amen. And I learned this from Kathleen Nielsen. She says in Deuteronomy 7, 9, if you were reading that or hearing that in the Hebrew, this is what you would hear. You'd hear, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the amen God who keeps covenant. Our translation, the faithful God who keeps covenant. The amen God, the God we worship, the God they worship is an amen God. And so when we say amen, we are responding to his prior amen. He's faithful to them. They need to worship. They need to be reminded of their sin and then their faithfulness of God to them. And that enabled them to walk in true repentance. And then lastly, they respond with renewal. So the last chapter here, or last paragraph, verses 14 through 19, it may be titled in your Bible, Nehemiah's Generosity. That's not in the Bible, actually. That's just the editors adding little subtitles. I don't know if you knew that, but that's... Uh, so, so don't like have your quiet time on the boldface subtitles. But, um, but it's a helpful sort of summary of what's going on. It's Nehemiah's Generosity. I'll call it the Moreover chapter. Because you see, as I'm reading this, I'm seeing Moreover, Moreover, Moreover. You're seeing in Nehemiah's life a commitment to renewal. Not just words, but actual lived out renewal. So that he does not eat on the backs of the people anymore, even though it was socially acceptable for him, the governor, to do so. He takes policies that were going on in his midst and he reverses them. He doesn't lord it over, that says in the text, even though that was expected and socially acceptable. That was the system in which he operated. He, he reversed those systems. He is not stingy. Verse 17, take a look. Even though that would have been understandable. Nehemiah, in other words, does not move the needle from injustice to mere justice. He moves the needle from injustice to generosity. 
And that's what we're called to do, friends. Generous justice. Not a phrase I made up, but a helpful one. We are recipients of God's generous justice. He is merciful and just at the cross of Jesus. Did you hear that? He is merciful and just at the cross of Jesus. He does not press pause on his justice when forgiving our sins. You understand? That's amazing. He's fully just. That's why Jesus had to die. He absorbed the wrath of Jesus, or the wrath of God on our behalf. And so on the cross we see a perfect display of justice. And yet, for those of us who are clinging to Jesus for our forgiveness, we see his mercy on full display because Jesus is gladly hanging experiencing the wrath of God in our place. It's a full overflowing bucket of mercy and a full overflowing bucket of justice. And that's who we worship. That's who we follow. That's who we are a community of. Generous justice. That's who we're a part of. This is sort of what happened as we uh, watch church history unfold. In the early church, the communities of Jesus uh, would live out this sort of vision of Nehemiah in really profound and non-ignorable ways. So in the early 300s, I'll, I'll read for you an example of what happened. And, and I, one of my favorite pastors from afar, his name is Ray Ortland Jr., he likes to say, Hey church, let's make Jesus not ignorable in Nashville, which is where he lives. So I'd like to take that charge and say, hey, what would it look like, Hope, if we made Jesus not ignorable in Columbus? Well, I think that would include not just extending the welcome of Jesus, but pursuing generous justice. Hear this example. This is amazing. So the Roman Emperor Julian in the 300s, in the 4th century, could not ignore this underground uh, community of Christians. Uh, They were indeed making Jesus not ignorable. And he didn't like it as emperor because it was winning converts from his religion. His Hellenistic Greek religion. So he writes a letter to his Greek high priest offering suggestions as to how to win back converts back to the old religion. His solution? Imitate the Christians. That's how non-ignorable they were. And so we have a letter that he wrote to this high priest, and I'll put it up behind me. He writes, It is their benevolence to strangers. Let that sink in. He's speaking of Christians. It is their care for the graves of the dead. Now, why is that noticeable? Well, because in that day, there was such a disrespect for the dead. And Christians were pro-life in every way. The Imago Dei is stamped on every human. And so burials were a mark of dignity. It didn't matter what you believed. And the early Christian community started burial societies to bless their city. 
And the Emperor Julian sees that. He's like, their care for the graves of the dead. And then he says, and their what must be pretended holiness, right? He has to assume it's pretended. Their pretended holiness of their lives. They have done the most to increase atheism. Now, he called it atheism because they were saying no to the Greek gods. They were saying no to him as curious, as Lord. And they were saying yes to Jesus as Lord. So he called them atheists. <laughs> They're this stubborn group of people who won't pinch incense to me. A stubborn group of people who won't bend their knee to me. Who would rather die at the stake than pinch incense to me. Who would rather die to lions than follow my decrees. Who would rather lose their jobs and be removed from their job communities. He says, this is what's increasing atheism, Christianity. For it is disgraceful, he goes on, that when no Jew ever has to beg, that would be an outsider to the Christian community. Wouldn't it? They don't have to beg. And the impious Galileans... Another dig at Christians. Support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Wow. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And so his final idea is this. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this sort. Julian tries to imitate the mercy and care of Christians in a deliberate attempt to save his dying religion. And what if that was true today? Okay, What if that was true today? What if the Julians of our world were noticing this? The Julians of Columbus were noticing hope in this way. What an incredible vision. We don't, I think, need to start a burial society in Columbus, Ohio. But we can listen to the outcries of the poor, expansively defined. And we can hear and not zone out. And we can act. We can. We're supposed to. It's the Holy Spirit, His movement through us. So what if that was true today? Well, three things need to happen for this kind of renewal to happen today. The first is this. We need... A greater Nehemiah. All right, we need a greater Nehemiah, and Jesus is that greater Nehemiah. Like Nehemiah, Jesus hears and responds to the outcries of the poor. He says, I came, I came, not just as a poor man, but to minister to the exploited. And he responds to exploitation with holy anger, as we just heard. We need Jesus, the greater Nehemiah. We need Jesus because while only Nehemiah could offer proximate justice, temporary justice, which is good to pursue those things, Jesus is perfect in his justice. He will make all things right when he returns. It may not be right now. We're painfully aware of that reality. But the scriptures assure us that he will right every single wrong. He will. He is just. He will come to judge the living and the dead, we confess. He's a right judge. He's a perfect judge. 
And while Nehemiah could only offer temporary mercy to the poor, Jesus says he came to release the poor and the captives forever. So in Jesus, think of this, think of this right now, think of this, Jesus, the mercy of God and the justice of God kiss on the cross. The wrath of God against our callous sins is poured out on him. And on that same cross, the love and the kindness and the amen love, the faithful love of God towards us is poured out. And we will never pursue right like we see evidenced in this passage without being made aware of our contributions to injustice and then being made aware of Jesus' cross. Okay, it's when those two things combine. So we need a greater Nehemiah. And then I think we need to repent of our super spirituality. Okay, this is a challenge to me uh, because I'm afraid that I am way too comfortable with spiritual matters, but very uncomfortable with social earthy matters. Aren't you? I like to retreat into my own sort of spirituality uh, and then sort of leave some of this stuff alone because I don't. There's like a hundred reasons why I'm just uncomfortable going there and therefore I just don't go there. But let me say this. Do not become unbiblical in your pursuit to be biblical. Do not become more spiritual than God who is concerned about injustice. And here's the outcry. I don't think we can, with the time we have left, go into full, get, do, do full justice to what this would look like as a church. But let me just offer three guideposts. And I'm borrowing from a retired pastor in Manhattan, Tim Keller. And he would encourage us to ask three concrete questions individually and as a community. And I'll sort of ask them aloud for us to ponder. First is this. Do I bring immediate relief to the person crying out? Direct, concrete help to meet the physical, material, social needs of others in the church and outside the church. Number two, am I thinking long term? Christians should be asking how they can not just offer immediate relief, but also lean in and walk beside and help someone crying out for the long haul. He points out how, and I'm quoting him, in the, in the Old Testament, when a slave's debt was erased and he was released, God directed that his former master send him out with grain, tools, and resources for a new self-sufficient economic life. That's Deuteronomy 15, verse 13 and 14. So economic development, this sort, he goes on, includes education, job creation, and training, housing development, and home ownership, capital investments in a community, and so on. And all these are means by which we think long term. And third question this, am I involved in reform? Remember, Nehemiah had, he walked into a system with laws and expectations. 
<laughs> and we, whether we acknowledge it or not, are also in a system with laws and expectations. And the question that we need to ask is, are we involved and are we known for in our community to pursue things that would change that system toward righteousness? Are we pursuing just police protection or behavior, accountability, just banking practices? When we drive down the street on High Street and we see one of those payday loan stores, what's your thinking there? What are you thinking there? That's a predatory loan agency, which is, in, I mean, it is, it is, it is not right. What are we doing? What are we thinking? Are we processing how to be involved in these situations? Uh, Are we thinking about zoning laws? And how zoning laws are used in unjust ways? And so on. He writes, and I'll put it up behind us. Christians may disagree about the particular political approach to the problems of injustice, but all Christians must be characterized by two things. Their passion for justice. And their personal commitment to ameliorate or remove injustice through personal giving, sacrifice, and generosity. I think God is calling us, calling our church, hope, uh, into a season of hard work here. It's very uncomfortable, I'm just being honest, leaning into this. But it's undeniable that God is asking us to. It's been said that there are two types of churches. There's creed churches and deed churches. Creed churches, they sort of are very comfortable with the creeds and the confessions and saying true things. And the deed churches are very comfortable in doing and acting and being generous and extending mercy and pursuing justice. And unless you think that we have a choice between these two, I would just remind you that the Nehemiah, the picture we have there, is one of both. Creed indeed. It's worship. It's amen, amen, and amen. And it's also deeds, pursuing mercy and justice. So let's ask God now to just help us in this journey. Lord, we we want to be a church of deeds and creeds. We don't want to neglect one for the other. Lord, would we see ourselves in this text even Nehemiah we see in your word repents so would you move our church into a a posture of repentance and humility and open our eyes we ask to ways in which we can extend the gospel not just in word but in deed in our actions in the way that we Pursue mercy and justice around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.